This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is New York Times bestselling British crime novelist Anne Cleves. We spoke with her via Zoom in September of 2020 about her newest book, The Darkest Evening, by publisher Macmillan. Anne Cleves is the author of more than 30 books, some of which have spawned two TV series with a third on the way. The BBC has the show Shetland, and the station ITV has the very popular show Vera, based off of Cleves' character from her novels Detective Vera Stanhope. Why does the author think Vera has caught on so well with audiences? I think because she is a woman of a certain age who doesn't need a man to support her or help her. She's authoritative, but she's got a touch of kindness in there as well. And she doesn't care what she looks like. And I think there are quite a lot of us of that sort of generation who just got a bit bored with seeing they put their makeup on before they go to a crime scene. So I think just seeing something that was a bit more like us We'll go deeper into the world of Vera in the book, The Darkest Evening, find out why a sense of place is key to that book's world, and learn more about the fascinating past and future of the award-winning New York Times bestselling author Anne Cleves on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Angie Weidinger. Anne Cleves, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Where are you? Where are you right now? Are you in your home? I'm in my house, which is in Whitley Bay, which is a faded seaside town on the northeast coast. So I'm in very much in Vera land. Lots of the Vera TV adaptations were filmed here. There's one particular ice cream shop right on the seafront that has appeared in four or five different episodes. So that's considered the Northumberland, is that how you say it? Yeah, Northumberland, yes. You know, so you've written about a book a year for about 30 years, which is incredible. So you've been on so many book tours. This, this. Oh, well, no, because for the first 20 years, nobody really wanted me because I did do a book a year and I was published, but I didn't have any commercial success. So there was no no question of anybody spending any money taking me anywhere. So my, my book launch would probably be just chatting to a readers group in my local library, which is why I'm so supportive of libraries, because I think they're, they're great training ground for new writers, because you get to meet readers who are quite often much more honest. If you're chatting to a small library reading group, they'll tell you what they liked about the book and what they absolutely didn't. So it's very, it's very good practice. Those are sometimes the most intimate chats and the most interesting chats with a very small group and you I do miss that actually having much bigger audiences you can't have that sort of that same personal engagement and certainly not with with zoom and crowdcast so 
I can't wait to go go back and meet some real readers. Right. Oh, those lucky people. Oh, that would be so incredible right? <laughs> to have that experience with you. Well, everything's kind of turned on its head <laughs> right now. But um, it, you mentioned how you kind of had a slow burn for your career. Yeah. 20 years you wrote and really didn't make any money. Is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, a bit because, you know, I got paid, I don't know, an advance of 1000 or 2000 pounds for each book. And I never really earned much more than that. So enough to take the family on holiday once a year or enough to, I don't know, bike, bikes for the kids or something. Uh, but I always had a day job. I wasn't able to give up the day job. And and, I, uh, but I think that was great because it gave me a chance to consider myself a writer and to write professionally, but without any pressure, really, because I didn't believe that anybody out there really was reading it. I can remember being really, really surprised meeting someone who'd actually read one of my books. That was, that was quite, quite a moment. So things have changed drastically in the last 10 years then, obviously. Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty busy the last 10 years. Yeah. How do you feel about that change in your career? I think I'm, I mean, it's lovely. It's lovely to be solvent and not to worry about having a hole in the roof or the car breaking down because I know I'll be able to afford to get those fixed. So that's, that's quite novel, quite a novel experience. But yeah, no, it's lovely and it's great to be able to go out and it's terrific to see the TV doing so well. But Really, that's not the important bit. What I love doing most is sitting at my kitchen table early in the morning and making up stories. That's, yes. that's still the fun bit. And I wouldn't have stuck out the 20 years of doing it if I didn't really love doing it. I didn't think it was fun. Were you writing mostly then for yourself? Was it a, was it a sort of therapy for yourself or just something you had to do? Yeah, not therapy so much. I just love telling stories, making up stories. And I think it's actually, it, it's hardwired into us as humans. I think that, you know, you get kids, they, they're pretending to be somebody else in the playground or they're, they're making up some sort of game that involves them looking at the world in a different way somehow. Uh, and I think that that's what we all do. Or we tell jokes or we... But it's all stories, really. Yeah. Well, your stories are so much fun to read. I, I am a big fan. And this last one, The Darkest Evening, it, 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 you paint such a beautiful picture of the setting. And you mentioned that you're in the Northumberland. Um, and that setting is so important for, to you. You even give talks and, and lessons on why setting is so important in books. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that plot and character grow out of place, that we are with a product of the kids and the streets that we played with and the, the people that we met when we were growing up, the, the community, what we saw out of our window, all that feeds into who we are. My daughter is an academic, she's a human geographer, and her research is all about um, the individual within, within the community, within the place. And I think that's what I do. It, it affects story because there are some stories that wouldn't work. You know, The Darkest Evening, that couldn't work in a city. You know, it's, it's very much feudal Northumberland with the big house and the tied cottages where people are so 
dependent on each other, both dependent on the big house for the land and for the work, but the big house is equally dependent on the tenant farmers for keeping the land fertile and providing rent and keeping the whole community going. So I think there's that. And then, you know, dialogue. We speak where we come from in very different ways. You can tell, certainly in the UK, you can tell what class somebody is, how much money they have from the way that they speak very often. Um, so all that, I think, comes, comes out of place. And so if you're a new writer, it's very important to decide where you're going to set your book because that has a huge impact on, on the sort of story that you can tell. Tell me about the Northumberland. Is, is there's, I know Brenda Blevin, who plays Vera on the television yes. show, she has got that accent down pat. But for an American, can you explain what the difference is? In yeah. That? Northumberland is... It's the bit of the northeast of England that goes from the River Tyne up to the Scottish border. So it's got um, Hadrian's Wall in it. So it's got, it, it, it's very much debatable land. It's border country. It's where the clansmen used to come down from Scotland to raid the English farms. And there are still lots of fortified farmhouses. Um, so we've got that, there's that sort of setting and that sort of background, but it's also where the coal mines were. So there are lots of places. When we first moved here in the, in the mid-80s, there were a lot of working pits, or there were some still working mines, coal mines. And that all went with, with the miner strike and Margaret Thatcher. And so we've got pockets of real deprivation within the rural idyllic setting, because that's where you know, it was hard to get jobs back into those areas. We used to build great ships on the River Tyne and we don't anymore. So all that history and that, that sense of belonging and who people are comes from the land, I think, and comes from the communities within this, this county, which is the most sparsely populated in England and um, one of the biggest. Wow. What is it about the accent? Do they, do they say certain... Are there certain phrases that are said in the Northumberland? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can't, I'm not from here, so I can't really do the, the, the accent, but there are some great terms of endearment, like pets. Away uh, now, pet. How are you, pet? Uh, she's a canny lass. That means she's a lovely girl. Um, hinny is another term of endearment. Honey, but it comes out as hinny. Oh. So how are you this morning, hinny? That's more rural Northumberland. Well, that's, I was going to ask about pet because I noticed that Vera says that quite a bit. And so that, that's a Northum Northumberland thing. It is very much a Northumberland thing. There, there was a TV show about um, some lads from the Northeast who went to work in Germany. And it was a, a sort of comedy, but, but making quite a strong social point, you know, that there was no work in the Northeast, so they all had to go and work in Germany. And that was called Avida Sein Pet. Um, but the whole country knew that they all came from the Northeast just because it had pets on the end. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Well, the, the spot that, that this book, The Darkest Evening, it's, it's set in, it was inspired by Tarset, is that correct? Tarset, yeah. Which is a, a bit, um, it's Northwest Northumberland. So it's towards the Cumbrian border. It's inland Northumberland. Um, 
and it's got a huge reservoir, Kielder Reservoir, but lots and lots of forest. So it feels quite Highland Scottish in a way. And I love the idea of that brooding forest that's surrounding the big house, but also surrounding the, 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 the farms too. And that plays a, a big part in the, in the story. Absolutely. It makes sense. For those who have read it, you'll, you'll say, oh, yeah, I understand then why you said it there because of mm. that forest. That makes a lot of sense. Well, the story grew out of the place again, really. I didn't have the story first. I had the place first. And, and I spent quite a lot of time there and just walking through the forest and coming across actually once one of the scenes grew out of a walk where I just came across a, a clearing and you expect a forest clearing to be very green and very lovely. But um, when commercial foresters go in, they just come in with their big machines and they cut the trees, they fell the trees and pull up the roots. And all is left is these sort of twisted, big roots and branches that, that, that die and become very white, almost like, like huge giant's bones. Uh-huh. And that very much triggered one of the scenes in the book. I know it's scene you're talking about, a very eerie scene. So that, that makes sense. Um, I, it seems to me there, there are a couple of books that kind of inspired you as well. I know that a couple of times you write that it was like walking the pages of Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> Brideshead Revisited, which is, of course, about a big country house and, and a family and about class and about an outsider coming into that aristocratic family and feeling very ill at ease and trying to to make things right there, but also being very seduced by the, by the family that are there. So yeah, yeah. a bit of that. Yeah. And then of course, I mean, I know Vera at one point even says that she felt like she was in an Agatha, Agatha Christie's novel in, in this book. And there are definite tones of that. I think it's very more than any other book that I've written. It's playing on the idea of the golden age country house Christmas murder mystery because it is set just before Christmas uh, the darkest evening it's, it's the yeah. longest night so yeah that's that's when it's set and so it does I I hope it gives a contemporary twist on the on that because it's um it's looking at that family and dysfunctional family and how communities what holds them together and what tears them apart very much I think so it's quite a a contemporary theme but I did like the idea of playing with that trope of the, the Christmas country house mystery. Sure you mentioned it earlier you, you said a human geographer isn't that what you said that yeah uh, it's, what, what does that mean a human geographer? It's a branch of geography it's an academic branch of geography certainly here I think I it's very akin to sociology so it's it's looking at the individual within context, within the context of the place that they're living. Um, so it is an area of academic research. And so you, you consider, do you consider yourself a human geographer? Yeah, I think I do in a way. I think, I think it's, uh, that's what interests me, is community and the individual of, as part of society, as part of a, and it could be a, a physical community, like a, a real place on a map. Or it could be a community of friends or a community of, of family. Yeah. And I, it's, it is the relationships between people that I think most crime writers are interested in. Sure. Well, and that's, it, that's what's so great is that you have built each community so vividly in your books that, that then you are wondering, 
until the end, who did it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that again is very golden age, isn't it? And I do like that, that there is something for that cheap thrill of a twist at the end, which is quite fun to do. If you can pull it off, you can't always, but sometimes you can. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about Vera. Um, so the crime drama, Vera, it's getting ready to shoot its 11th season. Yes, all being well, as long as we don't get a, another spike in COVID, then yes, they're all ready to go at the end of this month. And then you know, I, I saw that Vera was recently voted one of the UK's top five. Yeah, she came after um, Poirot, Miss Marple, Sherlock Holmes and Morse. So I think that's, that's pretty cool, coming after those great classics. I, I was very happy with that. Wow. I mean, why do you think people love her so much? Because she's not necessarily the most cuddly, lovable character. Well, I, think, I think because she is a woman of a certain age who's very strong, who doesn't need a man to support her or help her. Um, she's authoritative, but she's got a touch of kindness in there as well. And she doesn't care what she looks like. And I think there are quite a lot of us of that sort of generation who just got a bit bored with seeing all the representation of women on the television. You know, you can things like CSI, they're all glamorous. They put their makeup on before they go to a crime scene. They have long hair, which would just drop all over a crime scene. I mean, it's just not. So I think just seeing something that was a bit more like us was. And it's also a drama that the whole family can watch. Right, right. That makes sense. Well, I, let's talk, I want to get into the character a little bit more, but, but first, you know, Vera's popularity. It seems like there are several twists of fate or where fate popped in to make her so popular. I mean, first being her first appearance is in The Crow's Trap, which she wasn't even, she doesn't come in until later in that book, right? No, she doesn't. It wasn't supposed to have a detective in that book, and because I don't plot in advance. Um, but about a third of the way through, I got stuck. And it was the, your, your great Raymond Chandler who said, if you're stuck with a plot, have a guy burst through a door with a gun. <laughs> we, we don't do guns because we're British, obviously. <laughs> so I had somebody come in and it, was, and it was just miraculous because it was Vera Stanhope and I had the name and I describe her as looking more like a bad lady than a detective. And she's carrying all her papers in a supermarket plastic carrier bag instead of a briefcase. And, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how she came. She just turned up, though. I mean, you hadn't planned yeah. on it. It's just... No, she just turned up. And she was supposed to be a one-off character, right? That was Yes, it was supposed to be a standalone novel. I had a very young editor at the time who decided that um, traditional crime fiction was dead and she wasn't going to commission any more crime series. Um, <laughs> so could I please write a standalone, a, a, a big psychological suspense? And um, luckily she married a music journalist and went off to Australia. So I was <laughs> able to write more Vera's. Thank heavens, right? We're so happy because that is such a beloved character. <laughs> And then when she took off in television, I mean, because you wrote several more novels before she... Yes, before it, before it came onto television. And I think 
where she actually came from, you know, digging back into my subconscious, where she actually came from was, I was born in the mid-50s, so not very long after the war. And in the small town where I lived, there were these formidable spinsters who had either lost sweethearts in the war or who had more often, I think, been allowed to take on roles and responsibilities during the war that wouldn't have been seen fit for a woman to do. You know, all the women who were at Bletchley and who were doing all the looking at at the maps and where all the fighter bombers were and were looking after that and the women who worked in factories and made planes and worked on the land. All those women, um, I think, became stronger because of it. And there were certain of them who decided they would rather be single than be 1950s housewives. And certainly in in our town, um, for instance, if you're a teacher in the 50s and you married, you had to give up work because the jobs were for the men coming back from the war. So there were, I I can think of um, an infant school headmistress and hospital matrons and people like that who, who's, whose whole life was their work and they were completely competent and and quite scary. (laughs) Quite scary, is that what you said? I didn't care what they looked like because they they didn't need to attract a man. They had their life. And I think Vera grew out of those. Yeah. But like you said, what's so wonderful about her is that she is, headstrong but that she's educated she's always a step ahead of everybody but she doesn't need somebody else like she's perfectly happy with how she yeah I think so she's a loner but she's not lonely right wouldn't it be nice to be so comfortable in your skin at times (laughs) you know I think yeah I think so so. and I think again that's what what women especially like you know that sense that I can I can be comfortable with who I am and it's okay to be good at something. I think okay. for so long, women have had to pretend not to be quite as good as their male colleagues. Interesting. Because otherwise they'd be considered uppity, oversmart. That makes sense of why everybody loves her so much. Um, so back to where it took off then for television, because again, fate steps in. And yeah, just, the- just by just chance just a piece of luck that that first book the crow trap didn't sell very many books um so there were lots knocking around in remainder bookshops and secondhand shops and one ended up in a charity shop the oxfam shop in a north a rather smart north london suburb called crouch end and somebody went in looking for a book to read on their holiday um and found the crow trap nothing at all unusual in that but the woman who picked it up was called Elaine Collins and she was books executive for ITV studios. And they were looking for um, a, a series with a strong female lead to adapt for a Sunday night drama. And that's how Vera came to be on the television. Just luck. Oh, do you remember that call saying, we're thinking. Yeah. First, first of all, I got a call from my youngest daughter who at the time was a, uh, Bristol University, or had just left Bristol University, I think. Mum, do you know if the rights in the Vera books are available? Ben Morris wants to know. And Ben was one of her mates. You know, if you've got teenagers, well, you're too young, but if you've got teenagers, there are you wake up in the morning and there are these kids in sleeping bags on your living room floor who look like 
giant slugs, you know, who, who've just crashed for the night because they've been to a party or something. And he was just one of those friends, so I, I knew him from that. Like, well, why does Ben want to know? Oh, no, no, nothing. Uh, and it turned out that Ben Morris was Elaine's runner at ITV, and they just wanted to sign me out before putting the formal offer in. So I knew informally before I heard through my agent or through the publisher. Small world, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a great story. It's so interesting. So this idea for the crow trap, which is what started Vera off, I, I read somewhere that, that that idea kind of started when you were going on walks with your husband when he was... Well, it, it sort of grew out of that. Yeah, the idea for the story came a bit before that, but um, I thought it would be quite fun to have these three women who were doing an environmental survey before the creation of a, a big new quarry in the national park. So there was, you know, they were going up um, to, to see what was there in terms of natural history before it was wrecked with a great big hole in the, in the ground and roads and tractors and things. Uh-huh. Um, and they, they talk about ground truthing when they're doing those sort of surveys. And that just seemed a really good metaphor for detection and writing and exploring ideas. So that, I had that, but then, yeah, it came, it, it grew more solid as I was walking as my husband had been quite ill. He'd been in hospital. He'd had a, a, a psychotic episode stress related so yeah and he was very restless at the time when he was walking we just walked did lots of walking and it was while we were walking that 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 I was walking's great if you if you're wanting to plot and you're wanting to work out how the book's going to go because your your mind somehow goes just sort of relaxes and yeah does its own thing yeah so, yeah well it sounds like books and, and murder mysteries in particular have always kind of been, because that was a stressful time for, for both of you. It was. It was really stressful. And it was, I, yeah, books save you, I think, if you're, if you're going through a bad time. If you, if you love books, if you love a story, then anything that, that's an escape is good. And for some people, it might be film or music. For me, it was always story. And it was always um, just getting lost in a different world and becoming somebody new. And as I said before, if you've got all these chaotic ideas running or chasing around in your head, getting the side of inside the head of somebody completely new and different is is quite a relief. Plus, isn't there? I, I've heard you say there's something about murder mysteries in particular that it you know at the end things there will are- be light. Yeah, there will be some form of resolution. There will be some sense of order restored. And I think in unsettling times, I mean, it's more so for you in the US, where things are so divisive and divided and people seem so unable to come to any sort of sense of agreement, then I think, I think that's a time when traditional crime fiction, people are longing for that, for that sense of order and justice and people coming together at the end. Um, and truth will out, I suppose, is one of the, the main themes of traditional crime fiction. We're looking for that sort of reassurance, I think, at the moment. Coming up, we'll find out how our guest Anne Cleese decides what kind of people she chooses to create in her crime novels. I don't want to write about serial killers or monsters. 
I think I write about people who commit evil acts but aren't necessarily evil themselves. I'm much more interested in writing about ordinary people who are just pushed to the limit. Because I worked as a probation officer, so I did work with offenders and did meet murderers. And quite often it was something very small that triggered an act of aggression. Plus, we'll learn more about Anne's love of libraries, how she promotes reading as a matter of public health, and more when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. You've been setting up these reading coaches to help. Oh yeah, yeah. We've we've well, I was asked to do a, a speech at a, a public health England co- conference on health inequality. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know what it's like in the states, but certainly here, the poorer you are, the less healthy you are. You know, that people who live in poor housing, eat poor food, don't have the same um, support systems. Are going to suffer ill health. And there was a wonderful professor called Michael, Sir Michael Marmot, who did a report 10 years ago and showed absolutely the link between um, social deprivation and poor health. And he came back and revisited it this year, looking at that. And he was the main, the keynote speaker at this conference. And I was asked, I think, to come in and just tell some stories, you know, to, to bring a bit of narrative into it so that people weren't staring at graphs all day. Right. Um, and, and so I told this story about how I think that reading is important. Reading for pleasure is a higher indicator of academic success than parental income or status. Hmm. So if we read for pleasure, we're more likely to be more affluent, to do better educationally. And so it seemed to me that one way of, and yet, you know, we're closing libraries. We talk about wanting social mobility, but we're closing libraries. You know, it's, it's bonkers. It also provides the possibility of work that is fulfilling um, with the creative industries in the UK um, makes more than £8 million an hour for the country. Um, so, you know, creative industries, which might be film or music or design or, but it's, it's not just soft, fluffy stuff. You know, it's, it, Vera is sold, the, the TV show is sold to more than 200 territories. That's making a lot of money for the, for the UK. And if there had been no libraries when I was starting out, there would be no Vera bringing that income into the country. So we're looking at, trying to look at reading as something that's vital to the nation's health, not just emotionally and psychologically, but actually financially and economically. And so getting people reading if they're not feeling well, just it, I just was interested in seeing whether it would work or not, because there have been lots of bits and pieces and people have done it and set up schemes, but there's never been any real evaluation So I threw this challenge out. I will sponsor two project workers, you match fund and find me some academics to do the, to do the research. And we actually don't have 
uh, match funding for two. We have five local authorities who are committed to this scheme. And, the, and we've got lots of partners. We've got a literacy charity and we've got lots of medics. So GPs, doctors who will prescribe member of a reading group or meeting with a reading coach for mild anxiety, mild depression, chronic pain, because I think that it will work. And we even better, we have two universities who have got a big research fund grant to research the project for a year. So we're doing a pilot year and we'll see how it goes. Oh, that's so interesting. We'll have to watch and see. It's such an exciting... Yeah, I think so. And obviously libraries will be at the heart of this. And in fact, one of the local authorities got in touch with me and said, look, we can't match fund. We have no money. You know, if we match fund, we would love to be a part of this. But if we match fund, we won't have a book fund next year. So would you instead have one of our staff? So we've got actually a member of library staff is, is going to be one of the project workers. Oh, wow. Well, it sounds like it's really... But based in the community. So this library member of library staff, who's very much up to, for it, will be based in a community centre in one of the most deprived areas of the North East, working with these people. So it's something I'm very passionate about, as you can tell. For good reason. So like you said, this would be something that would be prescribed, just like yeah. physical therapy or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. Because we already do have social prescribing here where... You know, we, we have a national health service, so we don't pay for, for to see a doctor. And we do have um, a system of social prescribing. So a doctor can prescribe, if people are overweight, prescribe membership of a gym or membership of a walking club. And that's paid for by the NHS. So, yeah. But oh, cheaper than pills. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see how it goes. That's, and that was kind of a, a birthday gift for, from Vera? From Vera. Yeah, Vera's 21 this year. So it was, it was a way of Vera saying thanks to the region that, from which she grew, really. Yeah. Well, it's a fabulous idea. And I can't wait to see how it, how it goes. No, I, hope, I mean, it's not me. I, it's easy for me. You know, I just have the idea. <laughs> I can afford the, the money. So I give them a, that's dead easy. It's the people on the ground. It's Public Health England and it's the VON, which is the, the voluntary groups who are organising it and the National Literacy Trust and, and the wonderful medics who are, who are signed up for it that will make it work. Sure. Well, I mean, but you're not unfamiliar with setting up uh, reading groups and writing groups. Yeah. You've done that for bus drivers and, and all kinds of different people, right? Yeah, I, I think it's just fun. It's lovely to, to meet people and share that love of reading because people think that reading has to be a solitary occupation and it really doesn't have to be, you know, all these people who are members of reading groups. And it's quite easy if you live in a nice suburban area and you've got friends to get together over a glass of wine and talk about a book. But it's not so easy if you're a man, for instance, because it's mostly women that go through. Right. So we set up reading groups in pubs and that attracted mostly men, surprisingly. <laughs> and that, and some of those are still going. I set some up, oh gosh, 20 years ago and some of those are still going. Wow. Some of the pub reading groups, yeah. Reading and then writing groups too. You've set some of those yeah. up. Yeah. It, yeah, done some writing groups in prisons and reading groups in prisons too. Because reading has to come first, I think. If you don't read, you can't write. So. Sure. Have you been amazed by some of the things you've seen come out of that? Oh, astounding things, yeah. I did one in a writer's group in a young offenders institution. So lads about, 
I don't know, between 16 and 21, I think. And there was this, and we, we did a writer's, because I never know just what level of literacy is and whether people can read and write. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I do is, um, if you were writing the story of your life, what would you begin with? What would your first sentence be? And we went round the group and people started, you know, first memories and maybe relationships with parents came into it. And I came to this one lad who had been very sort of twitchy and antsy and I think was probably rattling through coming off drugs. You know, he was just not, I didn't, wasn't even sure that he'd been listening or that he'd be able to come up with anything. And the sentence he came up with was, um, I'd start with the buckle shaped like a ship on the belt my father beat me with, which is a stunning sentence. You know, I wish I'd written it besides the emotional impact of the content. It is a wonderful sentence. It just gives you chills, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Did did you give them examples or did they just... No, they just came up with that. Wow. So interesting. Don't you wonder what happened to that gentleman? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And I suspect that he's either a drug dealer or he's dead because we give very little support to offenders in prison. Right. Well, I, you, you talk about, especially for people like that, you know, writing can really help you deal with a lot of things, even aggression. And the reason I bring that up is I know it, it's, it seems like um, other writers too take out some of that aggression in their writing and I know you've killed off some people that <laughs> that you weren't too fond of in your books right yeah occasionally but in quite a gentle sort of way I'm not really interested in writing about monsters I don't I mean I will kill off the odd person who I felt is unpleasant but I don't to be serious, I don't want to write about serial killers or monsters or people. I, I think I write about people who commit evil acts but aren't necessarily evil themselves. I'm much more interested about writing about ordinary people who are just pushed to the limit for one reason or other or because of something in their background has made them flawed in a dreadful way that they have to respond because I worked as a probation officer so I did work with offenders and did meet murderers and quite often it was something very small that triggered an act of aggression of aggression well as you say it goes back to that relationship in the community too right that's yeah, that's what I noticed in my books yeah yeah um let, let's talk a little bit more about some of your influences um so <laughs> So your first book you wrote when you were living, you were living somewhere that had, was it an island that didn't have any yeah. electricity? It was, a, it was a tidal island. I met my husband. I, I dropped out of university, so I don't have any academic qualifications at all. So I dropped out of university and gone to work in Fair Isle, which is one of the Shetland Islands. Um, which is the inspiration for the whole Shetland series, correct? That's right, yeah. So I lived there, and it's tiny. It's three and a half miles and a mile and a half wide, but it's it's got a thriving community of 50 people. And, and the Bird Observatory, which provides employment and income because visitors come and stay there, it's also a place where you, know, you don't have to be a, a bird watcher to stay there. Anybody can stay there. And I was cooking, 
and met my husband there who was a visiting bird watcher. Uh-huh. And at that time, we had quite a good steady job um, in industry, uh, but packed it all up to, to become an ornithologist and to become a nature reserve warden. And so straight after we were married, we ended up on this tiny, tiny, it was 11 acres, it was really small island, um, which was tidal. So when the tide came in, you were stuck there. And when the tide came out, you could walk to the shore uh, called Hillbury. And we were the only people living there. No mains water, no mains electricity. Um, (laughs) It was quite civilised. We collected water from the roof and we had a little generator occasionally, um, but mostly tilly lamps and... Oh my goodness! So, it was like, so yeah, if you're not if you're not really into birds, then there wasn't much else to do. So it was a good place to start writing. Oh wow! Had, had, now, had you always thought about writing, or is that just you were like, I got to do something, so we're going to write a book? No, I think I never knew that I would. I never thought I would get published because I don't come from that sort of background. You know, the, I know, didn't know any published authors, or that was something that other people did. Yeah. But I did, um, yeah, when I was there, I did start, and I've always had stories going on in my head. So I can remember before I can read and write about three or age three or four, this running narrative in my head of me describing in the third person what I was doing. So I was always an outsider looking, looking in. Yeah. Oh, wow. You can remember that, that even as yeah. a child. Oh, it's, it's talking about your influences things. There's this new series that you've just started, The Two Rivers with Matthew Venn. Yeah. And, and, um, and I know, I know you've done this throughout your career where you've written, you know, Vera and somebody else, you know, you have different series yeah. writing at different times. Um, is there anything you have to do to get yourself in the right headspace for each of them? Um. I, I do like to alternate. So I've stopped writing about Shetland now because I think eight books is enough um, about Shetland. So um, and once I knew that I was going to stop, I was looking for something else to do because I, I think I wouldn't just want to write one series. I like coming to the end of a, of a book and thinking I'm going to do something different now. And, and that's what I, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. I think I was looking for somewhere else to write about and I grew up in North Devon, but I thought at first that maybe it's, you know, it's a tourist trap. It's too busy. Maybe I'm not sure. I was a bit worried about the whole cottages and cream tea type <laughs> things. You know, it, it is a place where cozy writers set a lot of books. And I, although I write traditional crime, I don't think I'm terribly cozy. You know, So um, I wanted to think about that. Anyway, about, uh, yeah, nearly three years ago now, my husband died quite suddenly and I wanted to run away. I just wanted to go somewhere different away from the family home, which is this. And I went and stayed with a really great old school friend of mine who lives in North Devon. So I went back. It was a bit like going home, going back yeah. to somewhere I'd be really, really happy because I had such great times there as a, yeah. when I was a, a, at school. And just chatting to her in her tiny cottage in Barnstable about her life, really. And she'd grown up in this very strict evangelical community. Lovely parents. You know, I knew them very well. There wasn't any, it wasn't cruel or hard or anything, but really quite rigid in their certainties. Mm. And it seemed to me that if somebody who'd grown up within that community 
suddenly lost their faith for whatever reason, quite publicly. I mean, I think my friend drifted away in quite a subtle, tactful way. But if you lost your faith suddenly and publicly, then you would be cast out. You know, you would be what they call unfellowshipped. And so he would have lost his family and his community at that time. And so it seemed to me that somebody like that would see that they would see the police service as somewhere that would give them that sense of duty and honour and belonging and even redemption sure. that he would have got from the, the, his faith. And so that's how Matthew Venn came about. And then I made him gay, not out of any political correctness or because my publisher thought it would be a great idea, but because the people who looked after me most when Tim died, the couple, you know, scooped me up after I'd come out of the hospital and gave me tea and sympathy and endless glasses of wine were a gay couple who were really close friends of both me and Tim, Martin and Paul. And so they were in my head when I was writing. And I, again, wanted to write about kindness. I think I write a lot about kindness. And they had been so kind. And I loved writing them. And for the first time ever, I was writing about a happy marriage. <laughs> and that was such a lovely thing to do. But then once I'd written it, I was really quite nervous about, should I have done this? You know, I'm appropriating somebody else's experience but got Martin and Paul to read it and they were brilliant. And then two other gay couples read it before it went to, to print. And so I'm hoping that it was all right, that I got the tone right. The, the couple that, that you kind of based off of, they were happy with it. Yeah, they were happy with it. Oh, wow. Well, isn't that interesting? Like you said, you're writing about kindness within murder mystery novels. Isn't that interesting? yeah. yeah. It's a very undervalued virtue, I think. It's not, it's not strong, it's not macho, it's not, but we can actually get a long way with kindness. Sure. Well, that's a good lesson for all of us to hear right now. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about, I mean, your books have been published in so many languages. I don't even know how many. Do you know how many? About 30, I think. Yeah. Wow. And so... To be, to be translated into Icelandic because there are only 330,000 people in Iceland. So it's pretty cool to get a publisher in Iceland. That is. So speaking, you used to work in a library. You've talked about yes. how those libraries are. I wonder if you could put on your library hat for us for, us for just a moment and, and offer any other suggestions in addition to The Darkest Evening, which everyone should read because it's <laughs> <laughs> But do you have any other recommendations after we finish that one? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. I think we're in a new golden age of British crime writing because there are so many fabulous young British writers who are coming up now. I think that there's a young woman called Kaz Freer who writes a really... She, she has such a strong voice that's different from... That's funny and witty and sparky. And she writes police procedurals but but they're quite complex and very psychologically interesting I think her detective is called Kat Kinsella so I would certainly recommend Kaz Freer if you want to cry and laugh on the same page Mick, Mick Heron I think is is quite big with you now but he's a brilliant brilliant writer I, I he he 
I think he's a crime writer, but he writes about spies. And these spies, it's the spies who've messed up, all end up in a place called Slough House in London. And they might have messed up. You can't sack them because they know too much. So they're all working for this grotesque figure called Jackson Lamb, who's big, but he's also actually keeping an eye on them and looking after them. And they are, yeah, there are some lines that just, make you laugh out loud and then he can be very very moving as well so there are some great characters in that as as an author writing those witty you know those comebacks just like the vera comebacks are those difficult to write or do they just come to you i think they just cut if you're in i think writing is a bit like acting so you're inside the head of the person you become that person and you you take on their character and their way of speaking and their words yeah yeah, so there's those two. Um, Abhi and Mukherjee is terrific. If anybody, he's Glaswegian, but obviously of Indian heritage. And he writes a great series set in the 1920s in Calcutta. So his detective has been very much damaged by the first war, but has gone to to work for the, the Indian police force there, you know, at the time of obviously the Raj and colonial, colonial uh, India. So he's he's really interesting. Vasim Khan, uh, another writer of Asian heritage who writes quite traditional murder mysteries. And the, the most recent one, I think, is called Midnight at Malabar House. And again, it's it's, I think, set in the 50s and is about the first Indian female detective. Oh, but that. Again, quite traditional, quite cozy, those, but, but very interesting. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. Those are fabulous recommendations. I appreciate that. Also, I saw that it, in your notes of your book, you write that this is the 20th anniversary of the Murder Squad. Yeah, that's great fun. Well, we started 20 years ago. We all were writing in the north of England, um, and that's quite hard if you're not in London, if you're a writer, you know, because that's where all the reviewers are and that's where all the publishers are. And it's quite hard to be, quite hard to network and get support and, and get your work in front of people. And you know, relatively well reviewed, but just not making any money. None of us were, were very successful. And so we thought we'd come together as a group. And I think it was the first time that anybody had thought of doing that. I think there have been quite a lot of groups now in the States, but we were really one of the first groups to do it, to provide mutual support, to do things, because it was before all the social media, and so you couldn't just set up a website or... Right. Uh, so we put together brochures that we put into libraries, and we did joint events, and then if nobody turned up, at least you had a bit of company, you know. It was, <laughs> and, just, and we're still going strong, and just putting opportunities in each other's way, you know, so if... if somebody's coming up to me and asked me to do a series or write a script or do something that I know wouldn't suit me. I can, like, but I know, you know, Castaignet would be brilliant at this. Why don't you ask her? Or Margaret Murphy is a much better speaker than me. Get her to do the lecture. So, yeah, so you can put opportunities in each other's way too. And it's just, we've become really good friends. So it's lovely. We do, sometimes we do big joint events together we did a whole weekend in a library not very far from me a beautiful new library called the word 
and we did a, 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 a reader's day and a writer's day. So we did a reader's day when readers all came, you know, by, by, the, by the hundreds. And we split them up into groups and everybody read a different book and shared their ideas of it. And then the next day we had a writer's day. Oh, that's so great. That was good fun. Yeah. Well, I want to ask what's next for you. But part of that is, you know, we talked about the Two Rivers series and Matthew Venn. I read somewhere that is that becoming a television series as well? It's been optioned. So we don't know whether it will actually happen. But yeah, it's been optioned by the same team as make Shetland and Vera because the same production company make both those shows and they've optioned. Have you Matthew been thinking so. potential writers on tours of that area or showing them? No, oh, well, yeah, I think the script writer has been down, but I couldn't be there because I was on childcare duty up here. But yeah, no, and my, my school friend who I stayed with, she showed her around. So that was even better than me showing her around. So yeah, there is a script. So it's just tricky with COVID, you know, people aren't committing to doing very much at the minute. So right. we'll see if it happens. It would be lovely. Yes. Well, and it's, he, I mean, he's such a wonderful character, completely different from Vera, much, yeah. <laughs> much, much less certain of himself and yeah, still haunted a bit by his background. Sure. What else? Are you working on a novel right now? I'm just coming to the end of the first draft of a new Matthew Venn. Yes. So that should come out this time next year. Wow. Well, we are excited to see it. It's the second in the Two River series, correct? Yes. Yeah. Good. Well, and I have so enjoyed this conversation and, and learning more about you and your wonderful books. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. And carry on doing all the great work that you are doing, too. That's New York Times bestselling crime novelist Anne Cleves. We spoke with her via Zoom in September of 2020 about her latest book, The Darkest Evening, by publisher Macmillan. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. The editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.